1: Welcome to Money in Your Life, the radio program that gives you the insight and motivation to be more successful with all aspects of your personal finances. Your hosts are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Today's program will feature experts and intriguing ideas that will show you how money is actually operating in your life. Now, here are Brian Farr and Anne Hutchins.
2: Welcome to Money in Your Life, a weekly radio show that explores how money influences your life. I'm Ann Hutchins.
3: And I'm Brian Farr.
2: Brian, we're going to have another interesting show today. Our guest, Richard Wilson, has had both personal and professional experience in service and support of ultra wealthy families. As CEO of the Family Offices Group, he provides services and support to wealthy families. And his book, The Family Office Book, is a really great resource for families and family office professionals. And if you're listening at home and thinking, well, I can switch channels now. Please stay tuned, because the lessons that Richard talks about are lessons we can all incorporate into our lives.
3: That's so true. I... uh you know, when I, was, when I was a kid, and actually into my young adulthood, I thought if I had more money or the people who had more money, they had all their problems solved. And then later on, when I became a financial advisor in my 40s, I realized, you know, that was not the case. And it really showed me that, that more money is not the answer always. It's how we work with our money. And I think that that's what Richard, um, you know, from his chair, from his perspective, he's got a lot of wisdom on this, this subject.
2: That's exactly right. So let's bring Richard into the conversation. Hi guys. Good. Let good morning. Family. Good morning, Richard. Welcome to Money in Your Life. We're thrilled to have you here.
4: Good morning. Especially good morning.
2: at this early hour of the morning. So. <laughs> Richard, I want to talk a little bit about your book, which, as I mentioned, is a really great resource. And you've written several books, but the Family Office book is a good reference for both family office professionals. And you spend one chapter in particular talking about what families, and and in your work, it's ultra wealthy families, but this applies to a lot of families as well. What families should consider when they're looking to build their support team. And I wonder if you could build that out a little bit and talk about sure. the process.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, we're doing this for one family right now that uh, has about you know, $200 million, but this is relevant for, for anybody uh, that has even just a couple hundred thousand dollars to start with to, to plan for the future. If you wait till you have a lot of money, you know, it can get into trouble. So I think that, first of all, when you guys are talking about how having more money doesn't solve everything, you know, there's a famous musical artist um, that used this term, and I used it for a chapter of my book, and that is more more money, more problems, and I think it's definitely true. Um, There's more things to deal with, more challenges, more headaches, more people want to charge you fees and get your money, and you become a known entity, especially in places like Western Europe, London. Australia, United States, Singapore, Hong Kong, and people, people find you if you're worth a lot of money and they hunt you down and, and sell you things that might not be in your best interest. So what we try to do is help people create holistic financial management solutions. So for example, a normal individual that has let's say $500,000 or $3 million to manage, they might just have a wealth manager. And then maybe their insurance agent that sells them car insurance also sells them, you know, a life insurance policy. And then that's probably it. Um, They might have a CPA for their small business or an attorney, but they probably only meet with them once every year or two. And there's just a lot of chances for things to get dropped. Um, If you're writing your car off for your business and you buy it or sell it earlier or later in a year or after a tax deadline, uh, that can have a large effect if you do some capital purchases in your Business that can affect your personal income, and not having all of your advisors talking to each other and being aware of all of those uh, crisscrosses of um, you know where people need to coordinate can cost you a lot of money. And the reason why it's more important for people that do have five million or ten million or twenty million or more is that if you imagine Procter and Gamble and the amount of currency exchange headaches they have to deal with with business in twenty different countries and you know, 25 different billion dollar brands, obviously they could have 10 people focused just on currency exchange rate, you know, risk management and hedging, and it's probably worth it because it'll save them that much money.
3: Right. Well,
4: obviously uh, most people, individuals don't have to worry about currency risk uh, because <laughs> <if> you can <laughs> not afford to hire them. Right. <clears throat> on it. right. Um, so- and so, you know, for a larger family, there's just more chances of a small percentage mess up could cost you a lot of money. So it's, it's exactly. better to have your team talking to each other all the time.
2: So can you talk about what works in terms of developing that holistic holistic approach? Where, do, Because this is an area where any family can learn from this. How do you begin with a family to develop that approach?
4: Uh, the first thing we do is create like a family compass or a family charter. And what it would yeah. have is what's the family mission statement, what are their values, What's their objectives, um, how do they want to talk you know and keep the family together? What's their philanthropic views? And you start with that, and then you find advisors that are in line with that vision and can help can help build that around you. And you just have to have either everybody at the tech office or have somebody in charge of kind of quarterbacking it so you're, you're coordinating every two weeks, every month, maybe every two months at the the least frequently and um, just keep everybody in in touch about everything that's going on for that individual.
2: So the important thing is first developing the family mission and being clear about the values and how money is serving those values. And then it sounds like there needs to be a point person. So having an agreement in the family about who or, or as an individual about, who is the central point of contact and how the information is shared? Is that, is that right?
4: Right. That's right. And the person that creates the wealth is not the right person to be quarterback in the whole thing. They might still make right. all the final decisions and do thumbs up, thumbs down, on everything. Even if you have a board that votes their opinion, it might also have the person who made the money deciding whether they pay attention to that vote or not. Um, but there should be somebody whose operational role is to make sure things are moving forward. Because right. you know, most
3: people who make a lot of money are very very busy. So, so can I could I jump in here, Richard? Sure. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Um, so let's say that it's it's a more typical family is is that uh, that might be listening to the show today is uh, is going to be a husband and wife and maybe they're both working and so they're going to be, you know if if there's there's the income from the two different incomes you know two different sources there. Um, had, how could how could you what kind of advice would you give to those folks in terms of getting on the same page, sorting out what their values might be, and and then yeah. translating that into into how they spend their money and what their financial relationships are going to look like?
4: Yeah, I think there's um you know there's a practical aspect and then there's the operational aspect and I think practically. Uh, it comes down to really defining what what stories are really behind the family, you know, at Thanksgiving and Christmas. What stories you tell about your grandparents? What stories you tell about, you know, how you first became successful, and how you and your wife, you know, first became successful, and what that means to you. Was it edu- education? Was it writing? Was it giving back to the community, and then you built your network, and things all came around through some sort of a uh, apartment situation, getting into the family history and family stories and making those ingrained in a more explicit way in the future of the family is really important. And from a practical standpoint, you know, somebody has to help run this family office or run the financial picture. And what I found is that most people trust their CPA more than other people. Usually they're not pushing products. They're just advising and they're very knowledgeable about how many things could affect taxation. So if you get a great CPA, they can typically, you know, help coordinate those monthly meetings for you.
2: Yeah. So who are the key players on the team?
4: Um, I'll say the typical ones that that we suggest uh, to consider would be a tax attorney or trust in the States, you know, tax attorney. Um, You'll have typically a lawyer. um, If your business is very specific to one industry, you might have more than one lawyer uh, we also have uh, typically an insurance or risk management professional. Uh, that's either a, a broker or an independent consultant who doesn't make a commission; it's just consulting. Um, and then typically, the larger the family is, the more likely it is they'll have somebody on the philanthropic, charitable giving side, and maybe a traditional CPA that came from when they first made their wealth in their original business. And they just know the history of every asset they own, et cetera. So I think that. You want to look at anything that could touch your financial picture. You want to make sure you have that expert on that video conference call every month or on that yeah. phone call or in that meeting room um, so you keep everything you know, under control.
2: Yeah, and I can hear listeners saying, oh, that takes so much time, and how do I find those professionals? You act as a resource for a lot of those uh, references. Is that right, or do you do due diligence on a lot of those professionals?
4: Right. Um, so I know many of the top ones, you know, nationally. I know the top two lawyers that work with $30 billion uh, families each. I know uh, insurance consultant type people. I I play that quarterback role uh, for some families or help them with uh, certain areas of uh, where they want to be allocating their money. Um, you know, typically they work with some larger families, but it just depends on the need of the family and really what they're looking for. Um, I think that It doesn't have to be frustrating. I think that if you just meet quarterly, um, most people aren't even meeting once a year with all their advisors on the phone. Most people hear something from the CPA, two months later they talk to their insurance agent, you know, four months later they might talk to their wealth manager.
3: Boy, that is so true.
4: You know, so...
3: That just is like that. That kind of, of uh, a fractured relationship, and what I've learned in working with my clients, I, I my primary work is as a financial coach, is that even for somebody who is an individual, even for somebody who's not part of a family, they're an adult. They've gone off and they've established their own life. Is it's like inside their own head. They 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 think about it periodically. They think about their money. Something will trigger it, and they'll have a conversation. I'll talk with the, the CPA or the attorney. It's just like you're saying, and then two months later, the next piece. So this is really a common problem, it sounds like.
4: Yeah, I think a lot of people who created their own wealth, they don't really trust the public markets with their money. They don't trust third parties with their money. They trust advisors to advise them on their money. So lots of people who own their own business, you know, money just sits in cash. And, um, you know, maybe they have some in some mutual funds, ETFs, et cetera, or a retirement account. But a lot of people just, you know, the money just degrades from inflation, basically, so they don't know who to trust.
2: Well, exactly. So how do you start to build that with clients? Um,
4: we usually only work based on referral. Um, yeah. All the families we work with come to us from reading our book or going to our, our website, um, watching a video on YouTube on family offices that we recorded, et cetera actually at the airport right now heading to Singapore where I'm speaking at uh, three different events and we're holding a workshop on family offices and so we typically only work with people based on referral and recommend the same. Um, the way I found my CPA right now is through someone who owns a, a large insurance business in Portland. He's been working with his CPA for 10 years. He went through an audit with the IRS, came out the other end without much pain and suffering and he's still with that CPA so that told me that you know they must be doing something right so yeah um, absolutely. i would just you know based on referrals
2: that's great and one of the things that you that i'm intrigued by that you talk about in your book is the 6 Cs of character analysis and you talk about that in reference to how you how you value or how you evaluate managers or advisors or part of your support team that you're talking to can you talk a little bit about that
4: Yeah, so basically, I think one of the biggest um, kind of conflicts and what I hear when I'm at conferences is that everybody says in venture capital and family offices and every area of investment, it's the team that's most important. Yet in the investment industry, everything's based on track record, what's your asset center management, all these objective hard figures that take all of the, the hard work out of it, basically. Like, oh, let's just do a math equation and hire someone based on that. And when it comes to actually judging the team, it's all subjective. You know, it's like, oh, they went to Harvard or Wharton? Okay, checkbox. But besides that, it's like, do they have 20 years' experience? Okay, but how do you know if you can really trust them? Because you can go to Harvard and you can have 20 years' experience but still be a crook. Uh, and so what I did <laughs> Yeah, people with, learned <laughs>
1: that with
2: Bernie Madoff, didn't they? Sad but right. true. Yeah, mm-hmm.
4: for sure. And I think that um, just real quick, um, you know, the six C's that, that I came up with was making sure the person is committed, make sure they're contributing, make sure they're centered, make sure they're a confident listener, make sure they can provide references and make sure they're consistent. And so basically, if they have all those six Cs and you can talk totally about each one, then that's a great thing. But if they won't listen to you, they're constantly trying to hard sell you something, um, I just turn the other way and I just won't work with that person no matter who they are, how successful they are. It's just not someone I want to have a business relationship with, for example. So I think it's just a system that I kind of uh, work off of.
2: Absolutely. And then how do you how does the family how do the families that you work with uh, quarterback their meetings? How do they come to agreement about who is going to be the point person in the family?
4: Many times in Asia and in Eastern Europe, like in uh, Russia, for example, it's almost always the son or the grandson who's heading up for that responsibility. But outside of Asia and Eastern Europe, it's almost always a professionalized team if it's a single-family office. So if someone has $300 million or more, they almost always have a professionalized team. But to bring it down to more practical terms, um, you know, typically I'd find it'd be the CPA uh, or the CPA, but then, you know, the, one of the uh, the matriarch or patriarch are typically just making sure that the CPA is, you know, holding that monthly meeting and doing it the way they had hoped, et cetera. Um, yes. But it just depends on the family. Like one family I worked with has several hundred million, and they didn't have any formalization of, of anything, really. They had a foundation. They had all their money and just a couple investment funds and one piece of real estate, and they just had nobody kind of managing their total risk or total financial picture. So.
2: Wow. Wow. We're going to have to take a break here, but we will be back. If you have questions, please call in. Our phone number is 866-472-5790 or email your questions for Richard or for us to Money and Your Life Radio at gmail.com. So, we'll be back with our guest Richard Wilson, CEO of The Family Offices and founder of The Family Offices Group in just a minute. comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
1: do you have financial goals for yourself do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life if you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances then you might be ready to hire a financial coach since 2002 brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money he's unbiased honest and approachable If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Anne Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com.
0: always
3: talking business talk to an expert call now toll-free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network
1: you're listening to money in your life with brian farr and ann hutchins to reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Radio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Welcome back. I'm Ann Hutchins and my co-host Brian Farr and we're here with our guest Richard Wilson, founder and CEO of the Family offices group in Portland, Oregon, now on his way to Singapore. and uh, Richard, on the break, you mentioned talking about some mistakes that you've seen and I wonder if you have a couple of cases that you might share with listeners.
4: Yeah, um, and just real quick, I think there's you know probably three you know, $10,000 or $100,000 mistakes to avoid. You know, not knowing what you want first is a massive mistake because you might be an advisor that's really great, really credible, listens really well, lots of references, and it's just not a right fit for your goals. Um, So not planning for the second one is just hiring too quick, even if you know what you want. Many times you get a good referral, you're very busy, maybe you own a business, or you're working 70 hours a week as a high-power attorney, and just hire that person. Just based on one referral and just hire them right away. And I think that can be an expensive mistake for multiple reasons. And the third thing is just not having governance policies in place. When you create that family charter or the family compass, you need to make decisions about how uh, advisors will be hired, um, especially if there is a lot of money involved and you're dealing with the next generation at all, even if it's just within the state, um, you know, Who's going to be in charge of hiring that advisor? And what if the next generation takes over? The son takes charge. The daughter's not as involved. And the son hires his best friend They handle the insurance. Who gets a huge commission off of it, and et cetera, et cetera. So it can be lots of problems yeah. there if there aren't some governance or decision making kind of set up. That kind of para family apart instead of bringing them together.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting. On the first point that you raised, you know, I had a client who had a manager that was in the in the industry. They call it a value manager, which is a slower growth, less, uh, but take less risk with the money Mm -hmm. and she had goals that really necessitated a growth manager and she had hired this guy because it was a reference from somebody that she knew and liked and she liked him but to your point about defining goals before you before you hire somebody it's really important
4: right yeah for sure and I just um like, as I mentioned earlier, I hinted towards, you know, I like to work with people that are really long-term minded. And, um, you know, if you don't pay close attention, you can just end up, you know, working with some real snake oil type people in the investment industry. So I think you have to be real careful that who you associate with and make sure you're not dealing with some sort of um, just great salesperson who just has nothing there, really.
2: Yeah. The other, you know, we had a quote from our guest, one of our guests uh, in a previous episode that I want to read to you, which is wealthy parents are often far more concerned with how to teach their children the value of money than pa- than our parents with limited resources. Do you have a comment on that?
4: Um, I think that wealthy parents are scared their kids are just going to be spoiled rotten, and they'll just grow lazy. Uh, you know, first-generation wealth creators typically had to work 68 hours a week for 10 years to make their wealth, and so they're just scared to death of, of spoiling their children in the wrong way um, and I think that uh, Warren Buffett says you want to give your kids enough money to do anything but not enough money to do nothing um, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's great i would never heard
2: play. that that's great that's great Brian, do you have a question before we start taking it? We have some email questions I see come in. So uh, we're gonna go to those, but Brian, do you have any questions for Richard before we do that?
3: Well you know actually I've got I got an email question earlier in the week. Uh, it's actually he was listening in Italy. Uh, we're, we're available on iTunes and I think that's how he got hold of us. Um, but it ties into the last and earlier show, but it also fits right in with what you're speaking about, Richard. and it has to be with generational differences. This man wrote, I have a colleague who is having a difficult time discussing his concerns with his father, who grew up during the Depression. Uh, It appears his dad has great fear around spending money, especially on himself. His father also has a tendency to hold on to everything, not wanting to get rid of anything he might need. So this man asks, do you have any advice for my friend about how he can raise his concerns with his dad without dad getting overly defensive?
4: Yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, is, um, you know, changing what we can in life, accepting what you can't change, and having the wisdom to know the difference, I think, is the easy <laughs> answer. Um, you know, part of that is just the joy of a family. You can't control everybody and make them think like you think. And I, typically, it's a parent frustrated with the son or daughter is what I hear, um, but I think you know finding common ground or finding how that affects the estate planning or the financial picture, and just choosing your battles so you focus it just on that five or ten percent of the total potential conversation that matters the most. Like maybe he at least needs to have an estate plan drawn up, or maybe he at least needs to be transparent in what the financial picture is, so that his kids can can manage for that and you know try to around that a little bit. So I think it's just, you know, not being too ambitious and trying to brainwash someone to be more like you, but just, you know, choosing the one or two areas that you just really need to get some clarity on.
3: Okay. That's great. Yeah, that's great. That's great.
2: I have another one uh, from Evie in California. She writes, I'm a grandmother of three remarkable children. Their parents are dedicated. We have a great working family relationship. I'm retired from a strong career in healthcare. I have an adequate retirement and savings. And I have a financial advisor I work with and trust. My question is, how to talk about money with my adult children so I can assist and contribute to my grandchildren's education now as they go through elementary and secondary school? They need it now, and they are in private schools, which is very important to their education, mm-hmm. as well as to their social development. I offer... And the parents say we can talk later,
4: right, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I deal with this with my own family, and I think that the things that that we do is talk about you know the stories behind our family the um the values we have we We do it through books, um both my sister's family and my family we make our uh, kids or at least have plans to, when they get old enough to read a certain set of books that kind of represent the principles like Jack Canfield's The Success Principles. I've I've read that once every year for the past five years probably, and I'll definitely be making my daughter read it when she gets old enough. For you know Stephen Covey's Seven Habits book, um, and you can include a couple books on finance as well that you like. Uh, but I think it's all about creating the right habits of yeah. you know the right level of frugality and um, hard work ethic, and you know investing in something before you expect something to come back in terms of energy being invested in something. So I think that it's just a matter of figuring out what are those five or seven principles that you just want to be really rooted in your children and just stick to those and just, you know, whether you have to, you know, uh, set up incentives for them. You know, you go to the summer camp or you go to that sleepover if you read one chapter of the book every week or something like that. Sometimes it's needed with kids, but that's the way that my family has kind of approached it.
2: Yeah, the other thing that, that seems to be a barrier is talking to her adult children, and that's an interesting conversation to open up as well. You have the grandparents wanting to help the children and the uh, the adult children in the middle, as, yeah. as, as it sounds like there's a little bit of pushback, and I've seen that with a number of clients.
4: Yeah, for sure. It also gets kind of complex and can make... Uh in-laws upset, et cetera, if, you know, that that grandparent generation has a lot of money and therefore some, some version of power in the family, it kind of seems like they're forcing their will upon the next generation or second generation down when maybe the parents don't want that influence. Maybe they want their parents, like, uh, the kids not to talk about money a lot for whatever reason. So I think that is a huge challenge and it just depends on the family, but lots of times If things get too ugly, you can bring in kind of a family psychologist mediator, but that's pretty extreme, and most people aren't going to pay for one, take time for one, and be uncomfortable even doing that in the room with the family. So um, there's no easy answer there. It's a pretty tough situation that just is going to come down to situation by situation, I think.
2: Well, it also goes back to something that you said about having a multi-generation conversation having a having um, having some rules around how you manage your money and bringing your adult children along. And it's never too late to have that conversation to bridge that to the next generation so that they can bridge it with their children as well.
4: Right. Yeah, I think that people become most uncomfortable when it comes to talking about inheritance. Kids are young. Maybe some people don't want to do that or... People are afraid that oh, your kids are going to think only money is important in the world, and right. nothing else is important. So, I think when it comes, if you get down to the basics, um, then typically people can find common ground of agreement. I think it's just, you know, kids don't want their or parents don't want their kids to be greedy or right. planted in some really materialistic way. So,
2: well, it gets this feeds right into the next question that I, that we have from Jenny. And she doesn 't say where she 's from, but how can I deal with grandparents who are constantly giving large gifts to my children? I feel like it is becoming unhealthy, so that may be the other side of what we 're talking about.
4: Yeah, um, yeah, for sure, I think that happens uh, quite a bit you know a, or a father given the the son of Ferrari, and maybe another part of the family is put off by that for whatever reason um, but yeah, I think that is something that comes up quite a lot, um, you know, especially in the United States. You know, I run into several families that have problems with that. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of like saying it depends to each question, but I think, you know, the, the answer is, you know, getting the family uh, to converse about what the priorities and goals and educational focus of the family should be and what the goals you know what? What do you want to instill in that next generation? What does the family stand for? You know what does the family mean? What are the values, and objectives? And then it would be obvious that it's out of line to give the kid a Ferrari. You know when he's twenty two years old or something yeah. like that. Like hopefully you could make it obvious that that was not the right thing to do.
1: Well, I'm that's,
3: curious. Uh, go ahead, Brian. I was just that's such a challenge because uh, I've, I've had I've, I've worked. I've worked with the client. My clients have been on the receiving end of those gifts, not at the level that you're speaking of, Richard. But still, it's the kind of thing when they've they've received some of those gifts of you know five thousand here or a credit card debt that was taken away by grandmother's check, you know, when they were teenagers or in their twenties, and and it seems like those people, those young people coming into the world, it's it's almost like they've gotten um, stunted. They, they haven't had to, to exercise those muscles, and, and, uh, and, and that's the challenge. I find there's a challenge, and it doesn't have to be at the level of wealth that you're speaking of. Uh, right. that there's, there's a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings, that, that they're, and they're aware of it. That's why they're coming to me as a financial coach. They're aware that they're missing a piece mm-hmm. that, that, that was taken away from them by this easy access to money. So yeah, it's, it's like, when when, yeah, it's when you're true working true. with families with that group how do you work with the kids to kind of recover from
4: Grandpa um, Lord Jess? Yeah, I think there's, you know, I think if it's if it's not too late, sometimes it's just too late. Like I know this one guy in in uh, Monaco who's 35 years old and it's about 20 years too late for him. Um I wouldn't know what to do but refer him to some sort of you know, family psychologist, if, if he would even meet with them or listen to them or meet with them as a whole family to try to re the situation. But I think, you know, uh, avoiding it early on is definitely, you know, the, the medicine to prevent it in the first place. I, I went to, um, you know, a private high school where half the kids there had far more access to money than they probably should have. And some of the smartest, you know, class president, like really high IQ people, um, they got into the best universities are now the ones who can't find a job and are still living with their parents, you know, in their thirties, et cetera, where many of us had less resources or middle of the road, you know, did very well because so we worked really hard and we got a good education. So I definitely see that happening, uh, quite a bit, but from my experience, uh, and this might depress some people who have kids that maybe seem like they're very spoiled, like, um, I just think that you have, to, you have to stop it really early on. Like, I'm not smart enough to come up with a solution where how do you correct a 35-year-old who's had that ingrained in his brain for 20 years, so that's the way the world works. I think it's just making sure that doesn't happen in the first place. Um, I think maybe the better question for someone else for once the damage is done, you know, how to reverse that.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: maybe a... Yeah. I'm curious um, Brian, um, Richard, you mentioned that you see this more in the United States what what cultural differences do you see in how families t- either talk about money or have set up different uh, plans in the family within other cultures?
4: Sure, so. You know Americans don't save a lot of money, um, and in other countries, saving money is very important. In other countries, saving money and reinvesting is important in multiple forms, whether it's land or real estate. In Russia, pretty much everybody invests in office buildings and apartment buildings, and they don't invest in hedge funds and private equity funds and other types of investments, commodities, etc. Um, that's slowly changing, but most families have the majority of their wealth in real estate. Um, in other cultures like the United States, there's more showing off of wealth, um, even though there's some backlash against that recently. Um, in the media, um, you know, most people want to get that, the newer Mercedes or the, the newer car that's more expensive and not save as much money. So I think that drives uh, spending habits. They want their, their kid to be driving a nice car to school. They want to, you know, drive the Escalade, et cetera. So I think that the norm, the expectation that if you're successful, you deserve this, that you've earned it. So you need to be spending that money. Um, you know, it drives a lot of decisions here. I think in, in Asia, it depends on the family and it depends on the city. Uh, in many, many cities, people are very conservative, but in Singapore, for example, um, it's not too conservative. There's people, you know, driving around their Ferraris and Lamborghinis and, um, like one guy had lunch with last time I was there his parents just bought him a two million dollar condo in downtown Singapore and he's just a photographer and is just doing some volunteer type work for different nonprofits. and you know uh, where other Asian cities are very you know some of them are very conservative and they don't show off the wealth at all so I think mm-hmm. uh, the cultural norms kind of dictate uh, a lot about you know the psychology around what's expected when you have money you know what you should be doing with it
2: yeah do you find in the, in the uh, other cultures that this question of mission and values it lands the same way that it does in the United States?
4: Um, I've found that uh, it, it's not as useful advice for some of the families that I speak to in the Philippines or Indonesia or, or in Asia just because it's less formalized of a family office. Typically, it's two people or three people running the whole family office mm. uh, they typically have an operating business, which is very large with dozens of employees, but it's such a small formalized office that a lot of this seems like overly bureaucratic documentation and they just want to, you know, get some advice and insights, but uh, it's hard to follow that. When you just have two people, it's hard to feel like it's a, a big important conversation to have a big, you know, professional document created. So I think that it's, it's challenging um, because of that. And the family office industry is, You know the term has been around forever, but it's really only twenty or thirty years old as an industry, and it's still maturing in many places.
2: Yeah. So for those of you who don't, those of us who don't have a family office, we can create our own strictures and and plans,
3: right? Brian, do you have any comments on that? Well, it seems like one of the uh, the real key pieces in here is 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 what what's important to families or what's right. important to individuals, and whether uh-huh. you speak about it as a as a, uh, their values or what is it that you stand for, and that's a conversation that's separate from the money. Uh, yeah. And I and I think that that's that's kind of the thread that I'm hearing through here. That regardless of our our level of wealth, that if we if we don't know what we stand for, we're at risk for the money pulling us or pushing us or feeling how we feel we have to do this or should do that. Whereas if if there's a clarity around our values, then then it's like we have a center point to work from, and then money becomes a tool. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: And one of the can what I break in here? We're going to sorry, we're going to have brain. to take a break here and pick that up on the other side. That's a really great question. Um, but we'll pick it up on the other side with our guest Richard Wilson. You have money in your life with Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr and we'll be back after a break. Email us with questions or give us a call at 866-472-5790. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much. We're always talking business.
3: Talk to an expert.
2: Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
1: The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhbar.com.
3: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
1: Listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call one 866 472 5790 That's one 866 472 5790 You may also send an email to Money in Your Life Radio at gmail.com. Now back to the program.
2: Welcome back to Money in Your Life. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co host Brian Farr and our guest Richard Wilson of the Family Office Group in
3: Portland, Oregon.
2: Brian, you asked a question before the break. You want to just rephrase that and we'll go into that with Richard? Well, now it values. was this
3: this idea about values that, as a financial coach, many times people come in and they want to talk about the money, this about the money. and I'll you know we work with that and then step back from that and get them thinking about the values. And I use a card sort is is a simple way that I use, but there's other tools that help people yes. get to the values. and that seems to be a thread that I'm hearing you say, Richard, is that it's not just the money, it's it's who these who these people are and how their money sh- can best work for them.
4: I, yeah I think that uh you know teaching others can be the best way to learn and really ingrain things in your brain so I think some people might find out just by teaching their children you know, even if you only have five hundred thousand dollars right now teaching your children the principles that make you successful and reflect really feedback on that and deciding exactly what you stand for and what values you act on can add clarity to your own life and make you grow grow your own wealth faster which I think pretty much everybody would like to do and then there's also a um I think it was a um, or maybe someone else has said, you know, your philosophy drives your values, and that can drive your mission and drive your actions. Um, mm-hmm. But if you don't have, like, a philosophy and you don't have values, then your actions will just be kind of random, and so I think this is just, you know, kind of business success 101 as well, but just lots of us just are never taught this type of stuff, and unless you read a hundred self-improvement books, you just don't bump into it on accident over a football game and a beer, typically, so...
2: <laughs> right. right. Well, you know, and going back to what you said at the beginning of the show about about uh, fractured advising, if you will, because we're talking also about supporting your or having a team to support you. If you haven't gone through the exercise of developing your values and how what your goals are and how money serves you, then it's hard to find advisors that will get you there. Uh, I forget what Mark Twain said, but Oh, maybe Mark Twain said something about if you if you don't know where you're going, you'll get there. Right. You know.
4: Right. Yeah. So if you yeah. if you yeah. haven't
2: developed your map, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That is. I think that is really important. And um, we run. Into, yeah. I think that business owners can really relate to this, especially if you own multiple businesses, trying to figure out the culture of each individual business and where where it's going. And the values that drive the value uh, creation within that business is something that can be applied directly to an individual's life. So I think a lot of people out there that have enough money to even be interested in this conversation are smart enough, hardworking enough, are business minded enough that they've applied a lot of these things, but typically to their own career or business and not to their own financial picture or their own family.
2: Yeah. And isn't that an irony?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah, mm. you see that in in many I've had clients who have been very successful and and come to me in their you know in their 50s with a, a picture that's really surprising because their business has been has been really successful and their personal uh, picture is really fractured. Mm-hmm. It's a you know, and it's it's again, it's a case of time, and this does take time to find good advisors and to find uh, a support team that works for you, and really to develop your value picture. But it is right. worth it. You know, the time right. you put in will be worth it. Yeah,
4: for sure. And you know, the whole reason why family offices they used to typically only be for people twenty million. $50 million in asset center management. And nowadays, uh, some family offices are opening them up to $10 million and, you know, even lower. And I think that that's because everybody needs this type of help. It's just making the model efficient enough that eventually you'll get a some sort of a family office solution down to the $5 million or $1 million mark, like someone will figure it out and, and do it on a national or global scale. So I think that's coming.
2: Yeah, and I would say that even for uh, individuals or for for smaller, smaller families, we're beginning to see the development of that. It's still very, very much Perfect. in the system favor rather than the consumer favor, but we're beginning Perfect. to see that, or I'm beginning to see that with my clients.
3: You know, where, where, I'm, where I see that, and I've seen it for some time. I was a partner in an investment management firm, and, and the, we would speak about that being the chief financial officer for the family, yep. Yep. and yep. as a, uh, our, we, we managed in uh, you know asset management was based on the, the, not on a brokerage, not on a transaction basis. And I think that created a lot of trust uh, with our clients. They knew that we weren't churning the account to, to increase our income. Um, so I think that the the kind of thing that you're talking about, Richard, it does, you know, you had mentioned earlier that the CPA is often mm-hmm. seen as a trusted, trusted advisor because cause he or she is on a, uh, you know, not on a transaction uh, basis for the ps yeah.
4: yeah, it's really uh, tricky. I mean, some things people should be aware of is that, you know, more an old school way would be like you're saying, uh, you know, if you trade stocks and the stockbroker gets a cut of each buy and sell of the stock, so they... Might be tempted to churn the account a bit more, do a little bit more high volume adjustments to your portfolio, and then the whole fee only trend came, which means maybe they're charged you know half a percent or one percent on your money, and it doesn't matter if you trade a little bit or a lot, you just get charged that one amount. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, recently there's this new trend where some people refer to you know fee only as a fee always, and that you're always charged a half a percent or one percent, even if we lose you money. So a couple of advisors out there are starting to experiment with, you know, charging a very low base fee and then a little bit of a performance-based fee that, um, you know, if you lose money, you know, if, if we lose money for you as your advisor, then you shouldn't be charged very much for our advice. And in those years hmm. where we give you great advice, but the problem there to watch out for is if people are taking too big of a risk in your portfolio and they don't have as much skin in the game when things go down, then they might – just make it really risky. So they get a huge upside returns. There have to be things in place that make sure that over three, five, seven, ten years, they're getting great performance for you and not losing money and not just spiking it in one year and abusing your portfolio that way. So there's issues with all three models. Uh, the third one is kind of new and only 0.2% of the market, I think is using that model. Most people are going fee only um, or have been for a long time. So that's what I've been seeing recently.
2: Mm-hmm. and what you bring up richard is a really good point which is that that the that you as an individual with your money you have both a duty and a right to call an advisor on bad advice and say i'm not paying your fee or to question the fees and to say mm-hmm. you know this is not what i this is not what i signed up for and right. Get some advice or do a, do a search, work a search around finding another manager Right. that, has, right. that yeah. has those five C's that we pointed out.
4: For sure, and I think it's important to remember if you are making several hundred thousand dollars a year or half a million dollars a year, um, your financial team should be protecting your capital. You know, It's your job to make money, and you should have your money, quote-unquote, working hard for you not so hard for you that it's taking large risks. You know, my opinion is typically if you're, um, you know, producing a lot of money yourself, then, you know, family offices are created to protect capital, not to try to double your money every three years. So, you know, most families I work with are very conservative and they're shooting for 5% to maybe 9% returns in their portfolios.
2: Right. If the, uh, if the returns look too good to be true, they generally are.
4: Yeah, for sure. And the biggest sign with fund manager that has no idea what they're doing is coming to you and saying that they are returning 30% a year and that they do well in down markets as well as up. And in fact, they do even better in down markets than they do in up markets. And when yeah. someone's really pushy, when they say those common taglines, when they promise 30, 50% returns just from the other direction, they have no idea what they're doing is my experience. So I think those are some good little you know, quick test uh, when you're listening to people.
2: Yeah. What are are some good questions that people can ask? One of the questions I suggest my clients ask is, are you a fiduciary? Which means Mm -hmm. do you have the skin in the game?
4: Right. Um, Yeah. I think my favorite one is something I steal from Dan Kennedy, which is basically, you know, give me three clients that you have worked with, uh, like investment banking I've worked with on one Mm -hmm. transaction the transaction was done, then they came back with you and worked on a second transaction with you. Um, Or if it's wealth management, like, give me the names of three clients that worked with you before 2008, and they stuck with you all the way until now. And if they can't give you three references, then, you know, you don't want to be the first person that comes back and works with them. Like, they should have many people that already have came back and through a hard period, like my, my CPA, um, going through an audit with my um, insurance agent business friend, and that being a good referral, you know, you should look for three of those types of references, or it's not just a reference. It's you know, like a, somebody who's done business and then done more business with that same person.
2: Yeah, that's really great, because these are questions that anybody can ask advisors. They can mm-hmm. ask CPAs. You can ask an attorney if you need an attorney, and you can ask um, a financial advisor.
3: Brian, right. do you have thoughts on that? Well, No, I think that I, I'm a big believer in, in what you've just said. That too, It ties into the, the C's that you spoke of earlier, is finding people who've been consistent, who've been committed, uh, who will follow through. And it does – finding financial advisors, assembling the team is a job is that that's an assignment that I think is 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 worth kind of dividing, you know, uh setting it out and saying, okay, here I'm going to go through this checklist before I make my decision, rather than right. just rush through it and be glad to get it done with. Um but to to invest right. the time to do the kinds of right. things that you're describing.
4: Right. I mean, yeah, for sure. Mhm.
3: You know, there was a question in here that that, uh, we have some time. We have a few minutes left here. Oh, no, we have plenty of time left. Um, A a lady, this is Judy from North Carolina. She says, in our wills, we have indicated organizations which will receive funds. Is there anything else that needs to be done to ensure that the proceeds are distributed according to our wishes? And, Richard, I'm thinking just in your experience – what what are some of the the, the uh, you know the good stories and the bad stories that you've heard you've seen in terms of um, wills and trusts and moving wealth from one generation to the next at whatever level that might be?
4: Yeah, I would say if it's anything more than um, fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars, there's a lot more to be done. Um, you definitely need to meet with a trust and estate expert and figure out the amounts, the timing if that's going to be put into a trust structure right now. You know, if you have enough money and you can put away some now, whether you can do so in a way that preserves more of that capital, um, you might be able uh, to. Let, end up let me jump
3: more. in. Uh, am I hearing yeah. you say that if somebody has assets that are going to be handed off upon their death that are in excess of fifty or hundred thousand dollars, you're saying that's the threshold that might make it worthwhile to investigate a trust?
4: Um, I think it's worthwhile to at least speak with a trust and estate expert at that level because just the timing of when you give away that money or the structure through which you do it or if you do it before or after death, just having that Mm -hmm. strategy and just meeting with somebody for two or three hours, um, you know, Mm -hmm. could save you enough money to make it worth Mm -hmm. it, I think, at that level.
3: Interesting. Yeah, I I had always assumed it was a bigger number than that.
4: Yeah, Yeah, no, I think it's it's not – I don't think it has to be an enormous number. And I think that, you know, I just met with somebody last week who – I assumed it was ultra wealthy because his last name was a a name we would all recognize and it's kind of a horror story of the family is a big industrial family worth hundreds of millions of dollars or was and you know a lot of the money got tied up in a business the next generation was gifted shares to a very specific part of the business and through an investment banking transaction where the Mm -hmm. investment banker had some conflicts of interest their shares their shares were diluted pretty much down to nothing they lost a lawsuit regarding that because they thought that investment banker and lawyer was working for them, but really wasn't. Um and basically this guy's worth nothing now and he's in his 40s and fail- finally uh, run out of mo- ran out of money. I think he got you know, maybe 2 to 4 million out of it, but you know, it's on deck to get 20 to 30 million. And it's just a horror story of now he doesn't know really what to do. And he's kind of, um not a very hard worker from what I could gather and is just used to having things kind of laid out for him. And so on a smaller scale, I think a lot of us could relate to it of just, you know, you never want to make someone feel too comfortable and you always want to plan things, but make sure your advisors are truly independent. Otherwise you could lose all of your wealth.
2: Yeah. And I think the other thing that, the other point that Brian raised and you, you raised as well was that giving, talking to a trust and estates attorney and planning to, especially if you don't have kids, for giving away while you're, while you're alive to see that it happens. It's not a bad strategy.
4: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Some, some people give away for business reasons. You know, they might give away to a charity just to get on the board and meet the other people on the board, and there's this side benefit so they can get the grandchildren involved and have them volunteering at the organization, and they can, they can use it for family yes. culture and business reasons, that might tip, tip the scale on actually taking action. So we're... The family who's and
3: I'm, away much.
2: I'm sorry, to, Richard, I'm sorry to cut you off. We're going to have to uh, to close. And Brian, do you want to tell us what's coming up next week?
3: Uh, Yeah, next week, um, we're going to be speaking with Lachelle Lochardet, and she is a specialist in working with couples. Uh, Lachelle is going to help us explore the difference between needs and strategies when we're talking about money. And she's also going to introduce some specific communication tools that will increase the quality for all of our relationships. So I hope you can join us next week.
2: Thanks, Brian. And thanks, Richard. It's been terrific talking to you. Uh, this is Ann Hutchins.
3: And this is Brian Farr.
2: And you have money in your life, and we'll talk to you next week.
1: Thank you for making money in your life part of your financial plan this week. Please join your hosts, Anne Hutchins and Brian Farr, again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.